I've been wrestling a little bit in the last week, um, having read some rather long Facebook discussions between friends of mine, uh, mostly Christian friends of mine, and I've been struggling because of uh, the level of animosity in some of those those posts, and and it has grieved me uh, significantly to um, to see that kind of interaction. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you want to say something badly, but you know that nothing you say will help. Right? You, you know, there's there's nothing you say. In fact. You have pretty good suspicion that if you say anything, it will be taken out of context and twisted, and at least half the people will hate you, and the other half will cheer for you, and, and you don't want to put any fuel on that fire, right? And so the best you can do is just to, like, zip it, resist the temptation, and, and step back. But I wonder... It seems to me that the people I, that the words I see online and the people I know offline don't have any connection to each other, right? It's like, it's like they've lost their identity somehow when they step into this alternate persona when they're sitting in front of their keyboard and their screen and they begin to type. And I wonder how that, that separation happens. How is it that I, I lose my identity and, and lose my way so quickly. I've, I've been thinking about that. There's a passage in uh, 1 Samuel 8 that tells the story uh, that I think you know pretty well. And I, and I think it's one of those stories where uh, we get our, our, our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God anchored a little more firmly. But we also get some insight into this transition um, that's happening in in the history of salvation in the Old Testament. So I'd like to read for you the story that begins in 1 Samuel 8. I should probably also mention that this this line of thinking was... uh, begun back during Lent when I was reading the Passion narratives of Jesus. And I came across one verse that has been gnawing on me ever since. And um, that's the other foundation for what I'm going to say today. 1 Samuel 8, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served in Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. I'm beginning to identify with the you are old statement a little more. When they said, give us a king to lead us, 
This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are now doing to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Did you catch their rationale? Give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations of the world. We know from Genesis 12 that Israel was selected for a specific task so that it would be different than all the other nations of the world. That God wanted to use them to bless all the other nations of the world. And rather than choose to be conduits of blessing, Israel says, no, we just want to be like everybody else. Israel's relationship with her kings is very complicated, as you know. Some lead the nation well. Some need lead the nation poorly. Some lead the nation into heresy. Some into revival. Some help the nation prosper. Others put the nation at risk. One thing is clear from this passage. Giving Israel a human king is not God's first choice, is it? This isn't what he designed them for. This isn't what he desired of them. And, and when we read the passion narrative, when we read about the Jewish leaders and their difficulty remembering their identity, perhaps it's not surprising the things that they do, given their history. But, well, let me just make this observation. I try to be very careful about language. Uh, I don't use profanity. Uh, 
but I understand that sometimes profanity doesn't involve bad words. Sometimes it's the content of the words that amounts to profanity. If I were to say that God caused the extermination of the Jews at the hands of the Nazis, that would be profanity. If I were to say that some races of people are inferior to other races of people, that would be profanity. If I were to say that women were less important than men, that would be profanity. Those statements are so objectionable, so wrong, so harmful, that we reel back in shock from them. And I have to admit that when I read the Passion Narratives, I really didn't anticipate coming across any profanity as I was reading the descriptions of what transpired, but I found more than I expected. The kiss by Judas on the cheek of Jesus was profane. A symbol of love used to betray and injure, that's twisted. That is, that is so wrong. The harassment of Jesus, the humiliation, the torture, it's profanity. Imagine the audacity to strike the Son of God. Can you imagine? But I confess, the verse I couldn't get past was this one. The Jewish leaders are standing before Pilate, and Pilate is offering to let Jesus go. And the Jewish leaders shout, We have no king but Caesar. How could they? How could they say that? How could they shout that? Have they completely abandoned their Jewishness? Even if they didn't believe that Jesus was king, how would they completely disown the heavenly king, the master of the universe, and state their allegiance to Caesar in this way? Have they completely forgotten whose they are? And sometimes, when I read the violence that Christians are doing to one another on social media and other places, I wonder if we aren't in danger of doing the same kinds of things. We Americans are so comfortable with our guaranteed rights that sometimes we forget that when we step into the kingdom of heaven, we relinquish our rights before his throne. When we become children of God, we abandon ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And our primary rights now are kingdom rights, right? We have a new set of principles. No constitution, no bill of rights can do anything to change the rights and privileges of the children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. However, it is possible by demanding rights guaranteed or imagined that it's possible to lose our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
When we bow first to this political party or that political party or, or to this political pundit or to this national leader or to Washington or any other government, primarily, first and foremost, we are forgetting who we are. And this forgetfulness wiggles itself into our conversations and starts to shape the way we think inside the kingdom of God. I mean, if you need to figure out what your proper orientation is when it comes to rights and responsibilities, you open up the scripture and you read Matthew 5 to 7. And there Jesus addresses anger and foolish talk and language and marital fidelity and lustfulness and divorce and revenge and walks all the way to loving our enemies all the way to loving our enemies. Perfection in the eyes of Jesus is loving others, even those who are our enemies. And so I'm wondering if in the middle of our disagreements, we have so fixated on our own opinions that we have forgotten our responsibilities to others. And those responsibilities are the things that identify us as children of the kingdom of God. Now, Now, it's not easy, what I'm suggesting. I'm not saying it's easy to practice this. I mean, I was sitting here in prayer meeting last Wednesday night with my mask on, praying through that blessed mask. And every time I inhaled, I was getting lint in my throat. And I was thinking to myself, this is really annoying, and I will be so glad when when this is gone. But let's face it, the mask is an inconvenience, nothing more. I am just so stinking spoiled that I just don't suffer any inconvenience very well anymore. In fact, I work to order my life in ways so that it is completely convenient to me. And if it isn't convenient, I'm just tempted to assume that that probably isn't something God wants me to do anyway. And I begin to lose my identity because that statement is almost profane. That if it's inconvenient, God wouldn't require that of me. There's nothing about the story of the cross that is convenient. I mean, it's a complete horror story. It's a monstrosity. There aren't words to describe how profane it is to consider the notion that God would be tortured and killed by humans, by us. We take some comfort in knowing that Jesus takes these steps for the joy set before him because he has a plan in mind, a mission for us. But let's not think it was convenient. Let's not think it didn't come at immense immense cost. Let's never forget the cross and the price that was paid for us. The price that demands that we pick up our crosses and our responsibilities and live as true citizens of the king, which means being used by God to bless all nations of the earth, to express the love 
of God, to give ourselves freely rather than demanding and taking what we think ought to be ours. We are too often happy to shout support for any king who will give us what we want, power or influence, incremental wealth, an easier life. And when we do that, we forget who we are. When we follow any celebrity, any talk show host, any political pundit, and and spout our feelings about what we now know because we're experts on the basis of what I don't know, it is so easy for us to lose our grounding in scripture, in what we know is true, in the image of Jesus Christ, in his mission for our world. Those things inform who we are. And we must be on our guard to not let anything external to those things tell us who we are. You and I, children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we serve him at his pleasure. We are the ones who are being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, becoming more and more like Jesus, reflecting the glory of God in our faces as we spend time with him. We are the ones that God wants to use to bless all nations of the world, to love them, to show them the joy of serving Jesus. That's who we are. I'm wondering as we think about our identity, what policies make it easier for us to serve others? What policies make our communities safer for those with the fewest resources? Are our opinions shaped by what will help us be salt and light in the world? Do our opinions reveal that we have not forgotten that we serve a soon-coming king? Because we know there is a day of accountability coming, right? Jesus will return. He has promised. And there will be a day of reckoning. And we know the terms of his reckoning. Do our actions reveal how invested we are in being salt and light in our world? Or have we perhaps unwittingly joined the crowd shouting, we have no king but Caesar? I say, at least in here, At this time, among these friends of mine, we have no king but Jesus. He is our sovereign. He is our Lord. He loved us before we loved him and gave his life for us that we could be free from sin and death and hell and that we can live to his glory now and forever. I say, no King, but Jesus.
and now to the King Eternal be glory and power and wisdom and strength. And may our faces reflect his glory to a world who so desperately needs to see the face of Jesus. Amen. Amen.